Hello and a very warm welcome to 20 Minutes With, a podcast brought to you by Proximo, a leading source of news and data for the global project finance, energy and infrastructure market. My name is Thomas Hopkins and I am Deputy Editor of Proximo. I'm very pleased to be presenting the first of our 2023 podcasts, which will be released on a monthly basis. On today's podcast, I am delighted to be joined by David Johnston, a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, who is going to be discussing the development of the Saudi Arabian project finance market with me today. Um, David, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Very happy to, uh, Thomas. Thank you very much for the invitation. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here, and I'm sure it'll be a very, very interesting discussion. Um, Before we begin, perhaps you could just tell me a little bit about your professional background and the current focus of your work at Norton Rose Fulbright. Of course, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a partner in the Norton Rose Fulbright project practice. I'm based full time in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. I have been here for the last um, five years. I've spent a total of 10 years um, advising in the Gulf. I've been with, I joined Norton Rose Fulbright 10 years ago when I came to uh, Bahrain, um, where I was previously. I spent a two and a half year spell with the National Mining Company of Saudi Arabia, which was what originally took me to Riyadh uh, before rejoining Norton Rose Fulbright um, almost exactly two years ago. My practice uh, really is, is, is based on the energy and infrastructure sectors, primarily in Saudi Arabia, but also further afield. And the types of projects that I am involved in, Thomas, are uh, you know your your classic power and water projects. So here it's you know, there's a bit of gas fired, but it's mostly renewables in terms of power. And in the water sector, it's largely desalination uh, with a little bit of transmission and storage uh, mixed in. And some other kind of more social projects like uh, district cooling, accommodation, and um, I've got several transport projects underway at the moment. Great, thanks, David. And it certainly sounds like you've got a really kind of diverse range of of expertise in the Saudi Arabian market, and I think it'll be really interesting to hear your your thoughts um, on you know on all those sectors. And I think that'll be of great interest to to listeners. And um, if I move into a discussion of project finance and infrastructure development in Saudi Arabia, and um, perhaps as an introductory question, and um, which sectors do you think are currently driving the greatest deal flow in the Saudi Arabian project finance market? So, Thomas, if you look at the transactions that have reached financial close over roughly the last two years, uh, the market was really led over that period by power, um, in which I'm including renewables and water. If you put to one side that the, the advanced polyolefins deal that advanced petrochemical signed in 2021, which is enormous and, and distorts the figures somewhat, those two sectors accounted for nearly three quarters of the market in terms of transaction value over that period. Now, this is hardly surprising if you look at Saudi Arabia as a country. It's a, a desert kingdom. There's a lot of sand here. There's probably less potable water, it's fair to say. And it's currently undergoing an incredibly dramatic economic expansion. So its requirements for, for water on the one hand and for power on the other hand are particularly acute. So for that reason, the power and water sectors have traditionally been the driving force in the Saudi Arabian project finance market. And there are a number of entrenched government procurement programs which have provided the bulk of the deal flow here. So in power, uh, for, for a, a long time, there was the IPP program run by Saudi electricity company, SEC, which featured a number of uh, natural gas and fuel oil power plants. This has been largely superseded for obvious reasons. 
um, by the renewables program run by the Renewables Project Development Office or, or RepDo, which sits within the, the Ministry of Energy. And we've now gone through three full rounds of the RepDo program with the round four projects scheduled to go to market next year, uh, this year, sorry. In water, we had the IWPP program, which is largely finished now, and the IWP desalination program, which, which goes from strength to strength. Both of those were run by the Water and Electricity Company, which is now Saudi Water Partnership Company, or SWPC. SWPC is also responsible for the ISTP program, or Independent Sewage Treatment Project program, which has brought a number of wastewater treatment PPPs uh, to, to financial close in recent years. In terms of uh, transactions currently under procurement um, now, uh, power and water really continue to dominate. And I, I think the, the, the recent developments in the water sector are particularly interesting. I mentioned the successful track record of project finance and PPP type structures in the desalination and wastewater treatment areas. I mean, this has recently expanded into other areas such as uh, transmission under the IWTP or Independent Water Transmission Project Program and storage under the ISWR program, that stands for Independent Strategic Water Reservoir. Outside of these traditional sectors, another area of real growth is, uh, is healthcare. There are several hospital projects currently at various stages of procurement by the Ministry of Health. Um, transport, a number of airport upgrade projects that have previously stalled, they're expected to move forward this year. Uh, they include um, Yanbu, Katham and, and Hyle airports. There are also a couple of very high-profile rail and road projects currently under procurement. There's the, the King Hamad Causeway, which will involve the construction of a road and rail bridge between uh, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. I'm sure you're familiar with the existing uh, King Fahad Causeway. It's going to run parallel to that, um, to a similar length of around 25 kilometres. And that's going to cost you know, an estimated $4 billion, which is a, a relatively eye-watering sum. But an equally spectacular project ongoing at the moment is the Saudi Land Bridge, which is another rail, and primarily rail, but also road project to connect the, the kingdom's seaports on the Red Sea coast, so like um, Jeddah and Yanbu, and with the seaports on the coast of the Arabian Gulf, um, so like Damam, uh, Jubail, and, and Rad al-Khair, and then that's going to run through Riyadh. There's also some projects coming to market which are, are either in sectors which are new to project finance structures or they're being procured by entities which are not traditionally seen as, as procurers of these types of projects. So, for example, the, the State Properties General Authority is procuring a, a courthouse complex in Maka, which involves the construction and operation of, of law courts and courtrooms and, and, and an admin building. And the ZATCA, the, the ZATCA Tax and Customs Authority, they are also procuring uh, the rehabilitation and operation of, of border checkpoints with the UAE, Egypt, Kuwait, Yemen, and Jordan. And, and I, sorry, I recognize this is only your first question, Thomas, but on top of all of that, you have the, the Giga projects, which have really come on stream in, in a big way. Now, I mean, everyone talks about the, the Giga project, but what's, what's actually considered to be a Giga project really depends on how you, how you define them. But in, in recent reporting, it appears that the government itself considers there to be five. So there's Neom, the mega city in the northwest of the kingdom. There's the Red Sea Tourism Resort. There's Kadia Entertainment City, uh, Roshan, which is the, the national real estate developer. And then the most recently announced is Diria Gate, which is a tourism and heritage destination site in the east of, sorry, in the west of, of Riyadh. These giga projects, you know, in addition to other projects which are not quite giga projects, let's call them 
mega projects uh, like Alwidian Commercial District in Riyadh, King Salman Park, uh, Jeddah Tower, Jeddah Metro, um, and Alula um, Heritage District. They're all going to be driving a lot of the deal for themselves over the next several years as we ramp up to 2030. So. I feel like I've said this every year since I arrived here five years ago, but it's, it's never really stopped being true. It's really, you know, it's a very exciting time to be involved in the in the project finance market in Saudi Arabia. No, I mean, it certainly sounds it. And uh, thank you, David. I mean, that was just so many different sectors you ended up needing to touch on. Um, so it does really just seem like the deal flow is is ramping up immensely. Um and uh, yeah, I mean, thank you. That's definitely set the scene, I think, for, for listeners as to where the key areas of development are. I think we'll try and touch on a couple of the um, sectors more specifically. But uh, thank you for the, sort of the kind of outline of uh, that's, I think, helped to frame the discussion quite a lot. I mean, if I sort of zero in on, on one particular sector, um, you mentioned, obviously, during your response to the first question that um, renewables has largely started to sort of eclipse the traditional power development that you'd see mm -hmm. in Saudi Arabia. And mm -hmm. um, looking at the obviously the largest renewable sector in Saudi Arabia, which is solar, um, to what extent is solar an established mature asset class in Saudi Arabia now? Thomas, if, if we define um, you know, mature asset class, and, and now I'm thankful it's, a, it's an audio format because I've just done the dreaded uh, air quotes, as having, the, if we define that as as a class, as an asset class which has achieved the scale, track record, and the returns that are necessary for it, um, not to be seen as a high risk investment, then I think the answer is probably yes in terms of of solar PV in Saudi, or at least it, it's definitely getting there. Uh, the first solar project in Saudi was Sakaka, which was a, a 300 megawatt. PV plant which commenced operations in 2020. So there is there is installed capacity on the ground right now in operation. Um, and since Sakaka, a further five solar PV projects have been financed. I spoke earlier about the, uh, as you mentioned, I spoke earlier about the projects to close in the last two years. And I, and I think the sector with the highest deal count over that period was solar PV. And this really reflects the focus on renewable energy energy since the, um, since the famous Vision 2030 document was published in 2016. Now that document and, and the accompanying programs have committed the kingdom to a, a renewable energy target of 58.5 gigawatts capacity by 2030. Now 70% of this target has been allocated to the PIF, which is the kingdom's sovereign wealth fund, and Repto, who I mentioned earlier, they're responsible for the bulk of the remainder. So there's very substantial government commitment to solar as well. And added to which, Aramco also has significant plans in this area. Saudi Aramco, the, the, the national oil company, they took a minority stake in the Sudair PV project, which is a 1.5 gigawatt plant, which achieved um, financial close, I think, in summer, I think in June 2021. Uh, and and in addition to that, the restructuring recently of, uh, of Saudi Power Procurement Company, which is the off-taker under all of the, the Repto uh, solar projects. That restructuring took place last year, and that's been very helpful in, in reinforcing SPPT's uh, credit position, uh, which, is, which is really going to help liquidity in the secondary market for debt and equity going forward. And then on top of all of that, you know, I think it, at this stage in the game, it, it's fair to say solar PV is a simple well-understood technology, so any, any technical or technological risk, which is assumed by investors, which is already probably relatively limited in Saudi, given that power projects here are procured on an availability basis, that residual risk is, is quite low 
So I think we can say reasonably confidently that solar is, or, or at least it's well on its way to becoming, um, as, you, as you said, an established mature asset class here in TSA. Thanks, David. And just thinking about other renewables development in Saudi Arabia, obviously I'm aware that there are some wind projects that are sort of under development, going to be tended out in, in Saudi Arabia. And yep. what do you think might be motivating the development of, of wind projects in Saudi Arabia, kind of given solar's success? And can wind sort of realistically kind of compete with low cost solar? I mean, I realize that might not be the design of the tender, but um, I'm just wondering why particularly there's a sort of interest in kind of developing wind al alongside solar. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And, and as you mentioned, it's, it's very timely as well. So the, the story of renewables, as you, as you could have hinted at, the story of renewables in Saudi is largely a, a solar first story. And although that is beginning to change. So there's actually one um, utility scale wind project to reach financial close in Saudi uh, so far. And that was Dumat Al Jandal, which closed in summer of, um, of 2019. The Dumat was part of Repto's round one, along with Sakaka. But uh, rounds two and three, they didn't feature wind at all. They were they were all 100% um, solar projects. Um, however, you know, wind is now is now coming back, and and rep, as you mentioned, uh, there are some projects coming to market. That's under Repto round four, uh, which is going to feature three wind projects uh, with a combined capacity of 1,800 megawatts, which I think is is larger than the the solar capacity which is being procured under round four. And it's probably easy to see why attention has, has turned to wind now. You know, you know, the load profile of a wind power plant is, is generally different to a, a solar PV plant in that it generates output over for 24 hours. Wind power generation is, is higher in, in the nighttime and, and also in winter when solar PV output is low. So a mix of solar and wind is really required to give you that round-the-clock coverage of renewable energy. And Saudi now seems to be catching on to its wind deficit relative to solar. And this is going to become even more topical as Saudi moves forward with ambitions in, in other new industries. You know, for example, the, the production of hydrogen from renewable energy, you know, so-called green hydrogen. Um, <clears throat> as to the second part of your question as to whether wind can compete, I think the I think it's I think I'm right in saying that the levelized electricity cost for well, well certainly the, the levelized electricity cost of wind projects is dependent on the availability factor and the location. But I think generally I'm right in saying that, that wind is competitive, if not lower cost than, than solar. Um, I mean, in Saudi specifically, you know, the, the wind speeds, they're, they're not exceptional. They, they, they run in the range of six to eight meters per second. Um, but, but that is that is sufficient, certainly, uh, for wind to be a viable technology here. And so to, to compete with solar in the medium term. Thanks very much, David. And um, I just sort of wanted, just moving on to a different sector um what are the factors behind the sort of clear shift from iwpps to iwps that we're sort of seeing in saudi arabia you know i'm aware of a couple of projects like sort of schweiber 3 iwp that have been sort of part of this shift and i wondered why particularly we were seeing that move yeah it's it is also a very interesting um question the and i mentioned um earlier that the iwpp program is largely is largely finished now in terms of new procurements and and this shift i think is effectively attributed um or attributable to the decoupling of water from power historically in the and i mean in the 1990s and 2000s the means of desalination was primarily thermal it was either 
multi-stage flash distillation, MSF, which distills seawater by, by flashing a portion of the water into steam in multiple stages, or it was um, multi-effect distillation, MED, which consists of seawater being heated by, um, by steam and tubes. Uh, thermal methods need to be co-located with power generation for the steam supply. And so when these types of methods were preferred, it really made sense for these to be combined as, as IWPPs, which, which as you know, stands for Independent Water and Power Project. Um, today, however, the, the dominant technology in desalination really is, is now uh, seawater reverse osmosis, RO. And because RO plants only require electricity to pump the seawater through, through membrane, their power requirements are lower and they can, they can really be met through, through just a connection to the electricity grid. Um, in addition to this, SWPC, which is, which is the body responsible for desalination procurement in Saudi, they are strongly encouraging the construction of captive renewable generation capacity at UIWP plants. And in the projects under procurement that we're involved in, they're, they're setting aside land for the project company to, to put that um, capacity on the ground. So as well as reducing uh, carbon emissions and, and helping the KSA meet its uh, emission reduction targets, all of this frees up the, the gas or the oil allocation that would otherwise go towards power, which would in turn go towards the desalination capacity. And it allows that gas or oil to be used more profitably. So both of these factors are, are really strong incentives on the government to turn away from IWPs. And you, you can see this, for example, in the project that you just mentioned, the Shueba Sea um, project, which closed um, you know, very recently. Um, that Shueba Sea IWPP was a, a combined power generation and thermal desalination facility. And that's now being converted under this new contract to a, a Greenfield RO IWP. The contract was signed between Aqua Power and, uh, and um, SWPC. And, and according to Aqua, the conversion uh, of this IWPP will save just about 45 million tonnes of CO2 emissions every year and um, will also allow 22 million barrels of light crude oil to be diverted annually. So I think the incentives, just looking at that one project, you know, the incentives behind this trend are very clear, I think. Yes, of course. And that's a fascinating point you actually make about the ability then to sort of sell that oil elsewhere. I mean, you know, if you, if you look at it from a sort of cost perspective i mean it's uh, the, the argument is just so clear i suppose for um for doing iwps over iwpps just given that um if i suppose if that oil is supplied to an iwpp it's at a very low cost whereas if it's sold on the open market that's far more kind of profitable really yes absolutely and that, and that applies to natural gas and more modern installations as well yeah of course no thank you that's a really fascinating uh, point there david um and um, obviously, we've, we've talked about power and water, which, as you said at the beginning, you know, I think it's very clear from your introduction that they're two of the biggest sectors in, in Saudi Arabia. But we've also, as you mentioned, seen a move to expand private sector participation into other sectors, sort of beyond the power and water sectors. And what do you think is driving the move to expand outside of power and water in, in Saudi Arabia? Well, I mentioned earlier that Saudi Arabia is currently undergoing um, what, I, what I would call an, an incredibly dramatic economic expansion. And the, the accompanying social transformation is, is really no less dramatic. I mean, the amount of changes uh, that I myself have seen in only five years here um, in the kingdom is, is absolutely extraordinary. 
but the population of Saudi Arabia is, is young, demographically speaking, and it's also ambitious. It's better informed about the world outside Saudi, and it's increasingly well-educated. It tends to prioritize things like quality of life, uh, medical care, education, in a way that, that maybe previous generations uh, didn't. And it's demanding a better standard of public service than might previously have been expected. And expanding, I mean, in the government's view, expanding the private sector's role in, in these and in other social sectors really allows the government to meet the needs of this population while at the same time being better able to balance spending and, and, and getting away from the old pattern of pro-cyclical public expenditure during periods when, when the oil price is high. Um, in addition, by being able to, to leverage the technical expertise that the private sector can bring to these types of projects, the government's also able to improve the, the, the quality of, of services that are delivered to citizens, which is you know, increasingly becoming a, a key public concern, as I said. Another, uh, another pretty fundamental driver of this is the, the keen desire of the government to make Saudi Arabia the, the preeminent location in the GCC and in the wider Middle East. It's really determined to make Saudi the, the regional business hub, and it's taking various approaches to attracting major international companies to come and establish themselves in Saudi Arabia to the extent that they haven't already. Uh, one approach is contained in the recent HQ localization regulations that require any non-Saudi company entering into a government contract from 2024 onwards uh, to have its regional headquarters located in, in Riyadh, but well, um, not necessarily in Riyadh, but, but in Saudi Arabia. So that's the stick if you like, but the you know the carrot or, or or part of the carrot is in delivering these quality of life projects and making improvements in the social infrastructure of the country and, and the healthcare facilities, the education facilities, and projects that will deliver something that people can do in their leisure time, so that these types of company and their employees, and particularly their executives, will want to come and and, and base themselves in the kingdom. Um, and you know the government's view is that the private sector's role is really fundamental um, in achieving this objective. Yes, of course. Thank you. And um, just looking at, I suppose, some of the incentives or the ways in which um, private sector development is being kind of encouraged in a regulatory sense. Um, I know that uh, you've definitely written about and uh, compiled, you know, a, a sort of guide to how the PSP law has improved development and you know adjusted the PPP framework. So, uh, I mean, would you say that the PSP law that was passed in Saudi Arabia in 2021 has really dramatically improved the framework for PPP development in, in Saudi Arabia? Oh, uh, yeah, I would say that unquestionably the answer to that question is, is yes, absolutely it has, uh, absolutely. I, I would say that the main positive which has been brought in by the PSP law and the, and the implementing regulations which have been released so far under it, is the level of procedural clarity in respect of how PPP and privatization projects are, are being tendered. You know, private, prior to the introduction of the PSP law, um, PPP and privatization projects in the kingdom were subject to a range of different regulations. And it wasn't always clear when or if um, these regulations applied under any kind of given circumstances. I mean, these included things like the Government Tenders and Procurement Law, the GTPL, and the, um, the National Centre for Privatisation's uh, Privatisation Projects Manual. Now, the PSP law has, has done away with all of this uncertainty now, and <clears throat> itself it's been, it's been firmly established now as the focal point of the legislative framework 
for PPP and privatization projects. The implementing regulations in particular, they also greatly improve the level of transparency, which is applicable to the issue of, of government authority and, and regulatory approvals. And they clearly set out uh, a roadmap which each project must follow in order to pass through the various approval stages. And this, I think, should, should really give investors and lenders you know, significant comfort by, by ensuring um, both that the right types of projects are coming to the market in the first place, and also that, that when they do, they are subject to a, a robust and transparent evaluation and approval process. On a, more, on a more practical level, the PSP law also addresses a number of long-standing concerns that foreign investors had in relation to, to Saudi PPP projects. And one of the major concerns related to the resolution of disputes, when investors were, were nervous about the prospect of being exposed to litigation in the kingdom's courts. The PSP law, uh, that now introduces the, the possibility of disputes being subject to resolution by arbitration rather than through the court system. And, and this development happily coincides with the, the strengthening reputation of the kingdom's first Commercial Arbitration Centre, the SCCA, which has been the dispute resolution forum of choice on most PPP contracts which have closed in the Kingdom in the last several years. In a similar way, the PSP law now makes it possible to apply a, a prevailing foreign language to a PPP contract which resolves another long-standing concern, namely the, the previous requirement that contracts had to be drafted and interpreted with Arabic as the, as the prevailing language. Now, all of this isn't to say that the, the PSP law is the panacea for all of the issues that investors have had over the years in the, in the Saudi PPP market, but it's already clear after, after about a year and a half of it being in force that with the improvements that I mentioned and, and the many other improvements that, that the law makes, you know, it, 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 it still represents a giant leap forward um, in the market in Saudi. And, and I, think, I, I think this is reflected in both the size of the market here and the, the robustness of the deal flow, which we were speaking about earlier. Yes, of course. I mean, and this certainly seems to be a kind of step change for the Saudi project finance market. Yeah. I'm, obviously, David, you've mentioned that there have been a couple of sets of implementing regulations that have sort of slowly kind of clarified areas of the PSP law. Mm. And I, I, as I understand it, there are still some implementing regulations that are due to be released. I mean, which areas of the PSP law do you think might still benefit from some clarification, say, in the future implementing regulations that come in? Yes. Yeah, so if, if you read through the, 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 the PSP law now, you'll still see certain areas where, uh, where it does contemplate the issue of further regulations to, to clarify areas. And those, those regulations, as you say, they, they haven't been issued yet. So we're still waiting on, on some of them. And like I said, the PSP law, it's not a panacea and, and, and certain issues do remain. I think in particular, you know, there is still a certain degree of uncertainty in how the PSP law interacts with other aspects of the, the Saudi legal and regulatory framework. Um, and I'd, I'd probably pick out three examples of this. So the, the first example relates to land rights that privatising public bodies can grant to the private sector. The PSP law requires uh, detailed regulations to be issued governing the leasing and, and, uh, and vacating of properties by the government uh, for the purposes of a PPP project. And I'm not aware that those have been, have been issued yet. Um, and you know, land rights is obviously a very key um, area, which particularly you know, international lenders, when they're coming in and looking at project documents there, that's one aspect that they you know, zero in on. 
The second example, I think, relates to how project companies are, are impacted by employment matters, and in particular, the government's policy of, of Saudiization. So, Saudiization, which I think it's officially known as the, the Saudi Nationalization Scheme, or NITACAP. That's a policy which is implemented by the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development in Saudi. Um, and it requires companies which are established in Saudi to hire uh, Saudi nationals essentially on a, on a kind of quota basis. Now, the PSP law allows the, the National Centre for Privatisation and PPP to exclude any PPP or privatisation project from provisions that regulate employee matters, which includes mandated percentages of employment for Saudi nationals. And it also includes the rules, for example, relating to, to termination of employment. Um, but it remains to be seen how these provisions are going to be implemented in practice. In particular, because any exemption would require the approval of the Ministry of Human Resources, the extent to which the Ministry will, will agree to implement restrictions on approvals, that, that's, that's unclear so far, especially given the Ministry's focus on additional Saudiization programmes in recent years. I think the, the third issue I would, I would point to relates to the competition regime. One area of contention which arises on, on just about every project that I've been involved in is the extent to which the, the merger control provisions in the Saudi competition law apply to any project which is, which is carried out by a joint venture. So I'm talking about a situation where there's more than one project sponsor, which is, which is really the vast majority of decent-sized projects. Um, in particular, it's, it's still not clear whether sponsors are required to file a, a merger notice, which, which here is referred to as a, an economic concentration notification uh, with the general authority of competition when the joint venture is formed. Now, all that being said, I, <clears throat> I would expect that most, if not all, of these areas are going to be addressed in, in, the, in the near to mid-future by the issue of further sets of, of implementing regulations. I mean, so far, I think, I think it's fair to say that the government has shown its keenness to meet the concerns of investors in the PPP market. But I think the scope for improvement is definitely there. But, um, but you know, further development of the PSP law and regulations is, is one thing I'll definitely be, be keeping an eye out for in the coming months. Thank you very much, David. I'm, I'm sorry to say that I think that's all we're going to have time for today. But, you know, David, just thanks once again for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome, Thomas. It was absolutely my pleasure. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Um, but before we end, I would just like to remind listeners about our MENA Project Agency and Development Finance 2023 event, which will be taking place in Dubai on 14 and 15 March. Proximo will be hosting the event alongside sister publications TXF and Uxalo. More details about the event and how to register can be found on our website at proximoinfra.com. Thanks to everyone for listening and do tune in again next month for more of your latest project finance, energy and infrastructure content. Mm -hmm.